Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Hey, hey, friends, thanks so much for tuning in to this online gathering of Redeeming Hope. I'm so glad that you guys are tuning in with us as we're continuing on in our little mini sermon series called Pastor Chat Celebration of Stewardship. I'm so glad that you guys are with us today. Either if you're watching this, this video premieres, if you're watching this on our website or Vimeo or YouTube or Facebook later on, I'm glad that you guys are joining us today. Let me remind us of our vision and why we're here. Redeeming Hope, we exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. This means that we want to be a family. That's our kind of primary narrative as family, that we want to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. And that we want to be really committed to helping others find Jesus. And so those are kind of our three elements of our vision, family, following, and finding. I'm so glad that you guys are tuning in. Pastor Derek is out visiting his daughter, Joy. She's competing in the world championship of wrestling. Uh, She is uh, an amazing wrestler. She's ranked nationally. And so we are praying for him and her and celebrating that accomplishment for her and praying for his safety and his safe travels home. So Derek and I were praying a couple weeks ago, and we really felt like this idea of the celebration of stewardship. It was actually flowing out of our Bible reading plan. It was flowing out of Derek going back to visit his church in upstate New York that he helped plant. It was actually motivated by me going to visit a church in Northern Virginia that has partnered with us financially. And so this was Paul's encouragement to give. And so today is kind of part two of that sermon last week. And Derek encouraged me to give us a little bit of an overview of what we talked about last week to tee us up for what we're talking about this week. So we talked about this idea of uh, the joy of giving. That was last week's sermon title. And we talked about the attitude, the motivation, and the context of giving. We first looked at the attitude of giving, and we talked about our money and our resources. And it was supposed to be, the attitude of giving is supposed to be joy and celebration. We looked at both Old Testament and New Testament examples of this. But we, at the end of that point, we talked about the quandary of this is that it doesn't always feel like a joy, does it? It's not like people are hopping, skipping, and jumping to go to the back to drop their offering and their tithe in the offering basket or go online and to give. There's just not that level of joy that we experience. So we have to look deeper as to why is, is the Bible say that it's supposed to be, we're supposed to give of our time and things and and even our money and joy, and yet we don't always feel like that. That's a quandary. We go deeper and look at the motivation, and we find that the motivation for our giving is not obedience, it's overflow. The motivation of our giving is not obedience, it's overflow, that we actually are God's treasured possession. He sees us as his treasure, that he prizes us as his own, and then he becomes our abundant provision. So we're his treasured possession, and he is our abundant provision. So the overflow is that we give back to God what is already his, that he provides everything for us. 
And so we give back to him just a small portion, a token of what we know that everything is already his. That's the motivation. And we ended by talking about how our life is not our own. And we actually referenced this text of scripture from 1 Corinthians 6. We said, your life, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. My friends, you were bought with the highest price Jesus dying for you and Jesus rising for you. And when we believe this, this produces freedom from the things and the money around us. It actually produces freedom from this because if we're not our own, then you don't bear the responsibility to navigate all of the details of your life. You don't bear that responsibility. You don't have to figure everything out. Your job is to listen to the voice of your master, Jesus, King Jesus, and then obey immediately. And so what we want to do is we actually want you to listen. If you didn't get a chance to tune in last week, we want you to listen to this sermon. That's kind of part one of our sermon today, which is part two of this idea. So you can go to ourhope.cc slash podcast. Again, that's ourhope.cc slash podcast. I'm just going give, to give you guys a shameless plug. We actually put our, our sermons, we carefully craft them. We have uh, a gentleman named Joel who takes our sermons and he cuts out the announcements on the front end and all the stuff on the back end. He, he puts a little intro and outro in there and then he uploads it to Spotify and Apple iTunes and Anchor FM and all these different podcasts. We have this video premiered on our website. So there's multiple different ways that you can join us, but we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, either over Spotify or iTunes. It would really be helpful. And then it would be helpful for you guys to, it would help us as a church if you guys would share this podcast, if something that we say um, speaks to you. So this week kind of dovetails into last week, because as we're talking about how we are not our own, but we are bought with a price and we are bought by a king who desires to give us a new way of living, bringing us into his kingdom. So we are God's treasured possession and Jesus, the king, buys us and then he brings us into his kingdom and into his new way of living. So today, last week we talked specifically about money, but this week we're pulling back from talking about money specifically and into a whole life approach. How do we shape the whole person? So we desire that all of our life is shaped by the kingdom of King Jesus. And, and really, what this is in contrast to most churches' operating systems. We see most churches' operating system is you do a Sunday check-in, and then you check out the remainder of the week. You do a Sunday check-in, you show up, you praise Jesus, uh, celebrate, and then with this kind of pinnacle moment, and then you just kind of check out the rest of the week. And maybe you go to a small group or maybe you don't. But my friends, Jesus is, he rejects this. He rejects that idea as dead religion. And what he does is he calls us into a deeper story that actually shapes our entire life. And so we need, we want to, we desire to be, we are called by Jesus to be a people who are shaped by him and are being shaped by him in his kingdom, into his rule and reign in the world, that we live and operate like we are underneath Jesus's kingdom. So our text for today is Matthew 6, but we're going to reference a few different ideas of kingdom and family and all these things. Matthew 6 verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So our title for today's sermon is 
the joy of a kingdom-shaped life. And we're just going to talk about three points today. We're going to talk about a kingdom-shaped life, a kingdom-shaped family, and a kingdom-shaped story. And we're going to spend a pretty significant amount of time talking about a kingdom-shaped life, just understanding this idea of the kingdom. So we're going to talk about a kingdom-shaped life, kingdom-shaped family, and a kingdom-shaped story. First, a kingdom-shaped life. So what we want is that our whole life is shaped by Jesus. But what we actually have to put back for say that all of our lives are shaped by someone or something. We have no choice in the matter. We don't actually generate our life and the patterns of our life and the decisions that we make purely from our own personal self-identity. We actually don't do that. We are all being shaped by someone or something. And so when we talked about the the kingdom-shaped life, what we're talking about is our identity and our personhood and our actions and everything about us, our life. And I want us to spend some time here because we're going to see, and I'm not going to give you like some sub points within this point, is that our life was, was first shaped by God and his kingdom. And then our life was disrupted and shaped by the domain of darkness. And then finally, we're going to see how Jesus invites us into a kingdom-shaped life, right? This is almost like a sermon within a sermon, but I'm going to try to go quickly because I want us to get this idea very prominently that you are being shaped, that you have been shaped, and you can be shaped by either Jesus or the domain of darkness that is in this world. So first, I want us to see, as we're looking at a kingdom-shaped life, that our life was first shaped by God. Look with me at Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we see in these first page of the Bible that we were created in the image and the likeness of God. Whoa, that's amazing. We could spend weeks and weeks looking at this. We were created to be like God. We were created to reflect his goodness and all of the good characteristics about who he is. And God had just finished creating everything. And so we see that if we're created to be in the image and the likeness of God, and God is a creator, then we were created to create. We were created to shape. We were created to form. We were created to enjoy God's creation and enjoy one another. And what we see even on a deeper level is that we were created for celebration. We were created for joy, living underneath of God's rule and reign to bring him glory. We were supposed to receive the goodness of who God was and then reflect that back to God and back to others. And so we see from these just for a few verses that Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion um, over, over the creation and be fruitful. That idea of dominion is to have careful care in which things thrive underneath of your care. So it's, it's, it's carefully executed care in such a way that things are thriving. That's what that word dominion means. And, and things are supposed to have success. We're supposed to be fruitful. We're supposed to multiply, have children. 
We're supposed to have families. We're supposed to multiply and grow and shape this wild, beautiful thing that God had created. And all of this was surrounded by flowing out of our identity in reflecting the creator. As God has dominion over the universe, we were called to have dominion over the earth. As God was fruitful and successful and the things that he did were good, we were supposed to do good things. As God was multiplying creation, so we were supposed to be little multipliers and have families and grow and to live in our truest identity in service of God and our ultimate enjoyment and joy and celebration and the fulfillment of God's design for his rule and reign in the world. My friends, this was the beginning of God in Genesis 1 living under his rule and reign and joy, celebration, and delight. And this was our truest identity, shaped by God, shaped by his way of living, shaped by his kingdom. He, he told us who we were. We were his sons and daughters, and we were supposed to reflect his character and his goodness. And we were supposed to be like him in having careful dominion and care and thriving and, and stewarding creation. We, our life was shaped by God under his rule and reign, under his kingdom. But then we see, unfortunately, my friends, in the first few pages of the Bible, that our life was disrupted and it was then shaped by the domain of darkness. Satan shows up and he disrupts the kingdom of God and he turns Adam and Eve from looking outward to care for the world and upward looking to God to then looking inward at their own selves. And, and, and Satan began to say and tempt things. This, he, he took the form of a serpent in the garden of Eden and, and, and he said that God is wrong, that God is false, that God is withholding, that God wasn't good, true, and beautiful. And he began to lie to them and distort and disrupt God's kingdom. He then was teaching Adam and Eve in just a few verses in Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible. He says, seek your own kingdom, satisfy yourself, shape yourself. You need something that you don't have. And so he was giving them a lie that they actually were not made in the identity of God, that their identity wasn't in God, that they needed to seek, to work, to be like God. But what's crazy is that we read in Genesis 1 that we are already made in the likeness and the image of God. But you see, it wasn't even intrinsic within Adam and Eve to rebel. They were being shaped by Satan. They were being shaped by the evil one. And so what happened is that Adam and Eve succumbed to the evil one shaping his formation of their life, his shaping of their life. And then they rebelled against God. And what they see, what we see is that they introduced a domain of darkness. We actually get this from terminology in Colossians 1 verse 13, how God saves us from the domain of darkness. So what we see is that we are being constantly shaped and the world around us is constantly seeking to shape us. It's a domain of darkness. And the world is telling us that you have to get yours. You have to fight for your rights and your, your identity independent of God, that you're good enough, that things don't work unless you take control and you be true to yourself. But what this does, this lie, this burden of the domain of darkness is that it places all the burden of my identity and my success on my shoulders. It actually places my life and the responsibility of life on my shoulders. And you see on the surface, it's my life, it's my work, it's my values, it's my identity I need to shape. It's that internal focus, but it's actually not that. There's actually going on something deeper underneath of this. Underneath of this, we are being shaped by either do the domain of darkness. 
Like it's actually just like Adam and Eve intrinsic within themselves. They were in creation. They were in perfection. They were working in the garden. They were tending the garden. But then someone, Satan comes in from outside and he sparks something in them. He starts to shape them. He starts to twist them. He starts to distort them. And then he starts to move against and disrupt the kingdom of God, bringing in the domain of darkness. And what we see is that this is happening to us today, that we are constantly being shaped by external forces that the Bible says that we're actually born in sin. We actually have sin inside of us, but we need to acknowledge that the world is also trying to shape us, that we're never truly independent, that we're born within cultural values. We're born with other people's expectations on our shoulders. We're born with a parents and a family structure. We're born with, a, we, we unify and get married and we have a spouse that all of those things shape our life and they're trying to shape who we are. So if you travel anywhere, you see that the cultural values are different and, and lives look differently because our lives are being shaped by other factors other than us just finding ourselves. So this week I was watching a story about a mobster in London. His name is Bobby Cummings. Um, he was Britain's youngest armed robber at the age of 16. And he was a gangster and he contributed some extreme violence in the 60s and 70s. He did bank heists. He ran racketeering and protection schemes, robberies, starting when he was a teenager. He had a double barrel shotgun he named Kennedy. And he used to fill it with rock salt to cause pain but not kill. And then the rock salt would melt with the blood after he shot you. And then there would be no evidence. That was how his mind thought. He had 40 years of a criminal life. He was even put in jail and he took the warden of a maximum security prison hostage. And so after that ended, he was what's called the 10-man key. That means that 10 Grown men in full riot gear had to be outside of his door before they would even unlock the door. That's how dangerous this man was. But as I listened to his story, there's this complex factors went into his story. He's actually, his family was straight going people. They were normal, hardworking, middle-class London people. And he had a, a strong cultural values in London. But he had this personality, this internal thing that I want to be the best. I want to take things to the edge. I want to take things to the max. And there was, he had, he had other people's expectations of him. He wanted to prove them wrong, that he wasn't a pushover. So there's these internal factors in Bobby Cummings' life that was preparing him at 16 to be the London's youngest bank robber. But it was an experience with a crooked cop who planted a switchblade and then extorted him from 10 British pounds when he was a teenager. That's what happened. He had a, a corrupt cop tried to, tried to get him, get some money out of him. So he planted a switchblade that was illegal at the time. And he said, all right, if you pay me 10 British pounds, I'll, I'll look the other way. And he was a teen. And what happened was, is he accepted that punishment. Um, he was actually brought in they said, you can either pay this money and plead guilty, or you can fight it and probably go to court and still get thrown in jail. So we ended up paying the money, but his name got in the papers. He lost his job when he was a young teenager, and then he started a life of crime. And, and his life was shaped by all these factors, internal and external. It was shaped by crime and killing and death for 40 years. And I think the story of Bobby Cummings shows us that we are never truly independent, 
that we're always being shaped by external factors. And what we see is that we're being shaped by the domain of darkness that is now present in this world. We are being formed by the world around us. And we're going to talk about this idea of formation in a few minutes. But there is a formation structure within the culture, within your family, even that, that, that seeks to highlight and draw out the selfishness of you and the self-centeredness of you and to cause you to turn inward. But really, there's external forces trying to shape you against God's kingdom. So we see that our life was shaped by God in creation. It was disrupted and shaped by the domain of darkness. And still that those forces are trying to shape you. But Jesus invites us into a kingdom-shaped life. He's inviting us into a new way of living. Look with me at Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. My friends, this is the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Jesus. It's it's God's operating system for the world. God is doing a work in the world to usher in his rule and his reign and his presence. And he's been doing this for thousands of years. And he could just snap his fingers and make everything right. But he has chosen to gradually allow his goodness and his truth and his beauty and his rule and reign and his kingdom to begin growing in the world. And he caused Jesus to come and inaugurate this kingdom, to to bring this kingdom into greater fruition. And then he's continuing to grow his kingdom since Jesus. What, What he's doing, what God is doing is reintroducing his rule and reign in the broken world. And he's restoring identity, our identity in the process. Now look with me at these two verses um, that'll be on the screen. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what we've been talking about the past few minutes. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into Jesus's kingdom. But I love the contrast with this. Also, 1 Corinthians 6, it says, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. There's some, I, there's some principles of us living a kingdom-shaped life that comes from these two verses. You see, my friends, we can live delivered from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. So we can be delivered and then we can live submitted to a new kingdom and a new king because we've been bought out of darkness into light, into the kingdom of his son. And here's some principles of, of how we can live delivered and submitted, delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and submitted to King Jesus because we were bought with a price. My friends, we can live in this kingdom where we can live freely. We don't have to hoard our time and our things and our money to protect ourselves. Why? Because we're bought with a price. You see it right there. Everything that we have is his. So we can live and give freely of the things that we have because nothing that we have is ours. Everything is his because we are bought with a price. In this kingdom, we can serve freely. We don't have to be self-focused and self-aggrandizing, but we can actually be God-focused and others-focused. We can focus on shaping creation and shaping the world around us and shaping people around us and inviting them into this new way of living. And we can live focused on God. Why? Because you are not your own. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not your own anymore. You're his. He's bought you. And he's brought you into a new kingdom with a new king. In this kingdom, we can say no. 
This is another beautiful thing. And we can have margin for rest. We can say no because we don't have to do everything to work harder. Our identity is secure. So when people put expectations on us, when people put demands on us, we can tell them no in freedom. Why? Because our identity is secure in Christ and insecure in his kingdom because we've been bought with a price because our other people didn't buy us. So other people don't own us. That means that we can say no. We can have margin for rest. We can model the gospel by resting and not overworking. Why? Because my transfer is complete. I have been fully transferred out of the domain of darkness and I'm transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And Jesus is now my king and he's my master. So I can freely say, yes, I can give of my time and things. I can let people stay in my house. I can give my money freely back to God through the local church. I can support missionaries. I can let people borrow my cars. I can, I can invite people into my life and invite people to my table. But then I also have the freedom to say no. If I'm overstretched, I can have margin for rest. I can have margin to, to have peace and, and rest and Sabbath in my life. Why? Because I'm owned by the king. He's my master, not other people. He determines my identity, not other people. My friends, uh, to, to live a kingdom-shaped life is to steward the life that we have been given to be shaped by God's ethics instead of the world's ethics. My friends, Jesus is our king. You don't have rights anymore. You can lay them down. And you can serve Jesus and you can serve others freely. And you serve Jesus. You seek Jesus. You live in Jesus' light, the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus says, I am the light. It starts with your family and involves your story too. And that leads us to the other two points is that actually when you live under the kingdom of God, it actually the very first and most important thing that it shapes is your family. But then it also shapes the narrative of how you view your life and your story. So shaping a kingdom life, it's stewardship. Why? Because we have one life to live and we want to steward it free from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God. We want to live a kingdom shaped life. Not only that, but we want to have a kingdom-shaped family. A kingdom-shaped life overflows into a kingdom-shaped family. Look with me at Ephesians 5, which seems discordant because it doesn't actually directly reference the kingdom, but we see kingdom principles here that we want to draw out and I want to emphasize for us today. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. My friends, seeking first the kingdom starts with your family. You cannot have a thriving relationship with Jesus and neglect your wife and neglect her needs. You can't do it. We were just, uh, Derek and I were at a gathering of pastors this past week and this man who's been in ministry for 50 years, he, he shared with us, uh, him and his wife got up on the stage and he said, if there's anything I need to leave you with, it's just this one phrase, fall deeply in love with Jesus and fall deeply in love with your wife. 
And he talked about how your relationship with God is really evidenced in how you love and care for your wife. Because when you're getting poured into by God, when you're getting discipled by Jesus, when you're following Jesus, it will have an immediate impact on the closest human being to you that you are one flesh with, your wife. And it will have an immediate effect on people who are underneath your leadership, your children. You cannot have a thriving relationship with Jesus and neglect your wife and her needs. Why? Why do we say this? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That's another way of saying we're part of his kingdom. We're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When you are united with your wife, and then you begin to receive life from Jesus. You're, you have a kingdom-shaped life. You're not being formed by the domain of darkness and the patterns of this world, but your mind is getting renewed. And you're spending time with Jesus and you're giving of yourself freely. It will affect your wife because you are one with her. Because your mind and her mind are one mind together. Your heart and her heart are one heart together. Your body and her body are one body together. So as you're being changed by Jesus, she can't help but be changed by Jesus. And the key identity in the garden is our life was shaped by God. And then it was shaped around one another with Adam and Eve. Adam sees his wife, Eve, and he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Their names are similar. <laughs> he says, our, our bodies are similar. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Husband, your wife is the second half of yourself. And the kingdom ethic, a kingdom shaped life begins with your home. It's a stewardship of your life and it happens within your household with your wife and the kids that you have and those who are the closest to you. And a kingdom-shaped family is marked by men who selflessly serve, courageously lead, compassionately care, endlessly love, mindfully initiate, and passionately engage. My friends, this is the ethic of the kingdom because this is the ethic of the king. We look at Jesus and Jesus did all of these things for us. You see, the world, the domain of darkness says, I work hard, I come home, I eat dinner, and she takes care of everything. I put the money in the bank, and I come home, and I check out and get to do what I want. Or I've heard some other people say, well, I do everything outside the house, and she does everything inside the house. I take care of the yard, the lawn, and I go work, but she takes care of everything inside, the kids and the food and all that stuff. Or sometimes the pattern of this world says, I can do what I want. She takes care of the kids. She's my in-house babysitter. No, that is not the kingdom of Jesus because that's not the king of Jesus. That's not King Jesus. The kingdom says love and serve your wife and family like Jesus. And my friends, Jesus is responsible for every aspect of his kingdom. Jesus selflessly served us. He left the comforts of heaven to serve us. He did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to courageously lead. He's looking, he's drawing. He's saying, no, don't do that. He's saying, yes, come follow me. He's saying, yes, I'm going somewhere. I want you to come with me. He is courageously leading his disciples and his church and his kingdom to an end point. He's leading his kingdom somewhere. 
and he's courageously leading. And that somewhere ends with joy and celebration and delight in him. It ends with perfection. Jesus compassionately cares. It says he looked out on the crowds and he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus endlessly loves. He loves to the death of himself. He loves to the death of his own life. He endlessly loves his people. He mindfully initiates. He's initiating with people. He's not sitting back on his heels, but he's pursuing the lost. The woman with the issue of blood who was sick and she touches the hem of his garment. She's immediately healed, but he stops. And he's like, where is she? I want to see her. I want to touch her. I want to, I want to show her my grace. I want her to see my love for her. He's engaging. He's engaging with his disciples. When they start to stray, he pulls them back. He's mindfully initiating, and then he's passionately engaging. He's passionately engaging with the people around him. He's not passive. He's not sitting back. He's not watching football on the couch like a numb human being, but he's passionately, consistently engaging. And my friends, here's the deal. If you're living in light of the kingdom and you're reflecting King Jesus, you don't have time for a lot of other things. Men, in order to live in light of the kingdom, first you have to believe that Jesus is your savior and that you won't ever be able to do any of this in perfection. But you are called to emulate Christ. You are called to emulate his leadership. And so men, here's what you're called to do. You need to self-regulate. You need to be a man worthy of being followed. You need to pray consistently, read the Bible, confess sin, be in a group, serve the church and attend gatherings. Like that's how you consistently self-regulate and self-control, practice self-control. Not only that, but your wife requires you to disciple her, to give her attention, to pray for her, to lead her and engage her well with compassion and grace and patience and love and care and gentleness. Men, your children require attachment and attunement. They need you to be attached to them. You need to be present with them. You need to lead them well and you need to be attuned with them. Have an emotional connection to model for them what good, healthy emotions look like. To model what connecting, to model security, that they can be secure as we are secure in our father. So fathers, your children need to be secure in you. And others within your proximity, your circles require leadership and modeling and care. Man, your, your wife doesn't need to give you a checklist of things to do in the house. <laughs> you don't babysit your kids. You are responsible for your family. Why? Because Jesus is responsible for his church. And finally, we move into a kingdom-shaped story. And this is where we go to uh, something I've been referencing in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. This is what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, you see, the story of being formed by the world around you is powerful. That I was sitting on my back porch this week with a friend and, and we were smoking a cigar together and he was just, he said, why is this so hard to do? Like it's so easy to do almost anything else, but this seems uniquely challenging and difficult. Why is this 
so hard to do. It's the hardest thing in my life to read, to pray, to serve, to be a godly man. And so we talked about this idea of, you know, we have innate sin and brokenness, which is drawing us away, but then, then we're also being formed. And I want to talk about this idea of formation, right? And, and you, everything in this world is seeking to form you. It's seeking to place you into its mold. It's that dominion, the domain of darkness. And, and how we understand how the culture around us is seeking to form us and shape us is by what the culture celebrates, what it mourns, and the stories it tells. That's how you form. That's how culture is shaped. Now, what does our culture around us celebrate? Well, Some parts of our culture celebrate passive, wimpy, sensitive men who have no backbone and just kind of do whatever they want, right? Other parts of our culture celebrate the aggressive, domineering, angry dudes in trucks who have no self-regulation and no self-leadership, and they also do whatever they want. And to kind of illustrate this, I I was, it's kind of interesting, there's, um, Pliny the Elder is a guy who lived in like between the years 100 and 200 AD. And there's this guy, he coined the phrase, fortune favors the bold. And I was doing a little research for our sermon today. And and, um, Pliny the Elder was a naval commander in the Roman army, okay? He was uh, in the Roman Navy. He was a philosopher. He was a naturalist. He studied nature. And he was also a profound author. He actually wrote the world's first encyclopedia, right? So um, he's commanding the Roman fleet near Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupts, right? And so he sees Mount Vesuvius erupting and he kind of panics. He freaks out. He's curious about the natural event that's happening. He's also got some friends near Pompeii and he wants to go get those people, right? Well, um, he says, he jumps in his boat, he gets a, couple, a cruise, and he's like, okay, we're going to go into Pompeii. And there's no planning, there's no thought process behind it. We're just going to go, right? And, and this guy, he's going towards a cloud of hot gases, okay? And, and, and the guy who's leading the boat, he kind of turns to him, he's like, uh, maybe you want to turn, turn back? There's like a cloud of hot gases in front of us, right? Well, and then and Pliny says these, these famous words, Famous last words, actually, is his fortune favors the bold. So steer to where Pompeii is. That's what he said. Fortune favors the bold. Steer to Pompeii. And then he immediately died of respiratory distress. In fact, he had asthma and breathing issues. And he went into a cloud of hot dust and he died. And that was the end of Pliny the Elder. And see, see our culture celebrates foolishness recklessness, and they, they put it under terminology of freedom and finding yourself and being you. And, and you see, part of the pressure of the world around us, the pressure cooker of, of the formation of the world around us is what they celebrate. The world celebrates self and building our own kingdom to do whatever we want. That's what, that's what the culture around us celebrates. What does our culture mourn? So we also learn about how the culture forms us through what it mourns. Our culture mourns or derides weakness, submission, loss, or failure. So, so they say you need to, if you lose your kingdom, if you've built this up and lost it, that is, that is mourned. That's a mourning process for our culture. So our culture celebrates the building of your kingdom and celebrates even foolishness and recklessness. 
It's, it mourns the loss of a kingdom and weakness. You don't want to be weak in this world. And then finally, the stories that our culture tells is the stories of overcoming over and over and over again. I was here and then I got to here. I was down in the dumps before you met me. It's always before you meet somebody. They're never down in the dumps when you meet them. It's always before. And then look at how I rose up to champion my marriage. My marriage was on the rocks, but I put the work in to accomplish it. It's that Jocko Willink, like wake your alarm up in the morning, right? It's that like extreme ownership and do this. And some of those principles are good, but the stories that are our culture around us and the, and the do- domain of darkness around us are they're forming us. They're seeking to, to form us into types of human beings that are against God's kingdom. And this is the formation of the world is essentially I can do what I want when I want. But we see in Romans 12 and we see a gospel, a kingdom-shaped story means that renewal happens when we are being formed by the kingdom and we're being formed by the king of the kingdom. And I want to go back to those verses that we read a few minutes ago, Colossians 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. I am not my own. I have a new king and master and Lord, and I am in his kingdom underneath his rule and underneath his reign. And the celebration of the kingdom is that Jesus saves us in our weakness and rebellion. Remember we talked about how uh, the culture around us is shaping us in three ways, what you celebrate, what you mourn, and the stories you tell. Well, guess what? God's kingdom does this too. Celebration of Jesus saving us in our weakness and rebellion. The, 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 the kingdom mourns those who reject Jesus's work and mourns people who try to do it on their own. It says, don't do that. Don't be like that, right? And here's the beauty. The story of the kingdom is this, that we were created in the image and in the likeness of God. We were created to be like him, to reflect him, to reflect his characteristics back to him and to others. And all of this was, we were created, all of this was supposed to flow out of our identity in reflecting the creator in service to God and our ultimate enjoyment and joy and celebration in him as we were doing good work. This was our truest identity shaped by God and his way of living shaped by God's kingdom. That's the beginning of the story of God's kingdom. But the story that the kingdom tells us is that we rebelled. We sought our own kingdom. We were running far from God and now we are being shaped by the domain of darkness This attacks the family. It draws us into selfish, self-focused living. But, this is part of the story. This is the beauty of the story. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, he steps in and he delivers us from the domain of darkness. He buys us back with the sacrifice of his own life. And he brings us into his kingdom again, where we can have joy and celebration and delight in our renewed identity, being rediscovered and secured in his strength, which overcomes our weakness. We now live in an others-focused, self-sacrificing life that's being renewed in the inner man and renewed in our minds by God's spirit who resides within us. 
That's the story of the kingdom. And this can be your story if you follow Jesus. And it is such a better story than the work harder, do more, be better, outrage, self-focused culture of the world around us. It is a story that's rooted in Sabbath rest. It's a story that's rooted in embracing weakness. It's a story that's rooted in turning to Jesus. It's a story that's rooted of grace-filled, forgiveness-saturated, self-rejecting, others-focused way of living that begins in your home and then reverberates throughout your entire life and into the world. That is what it looks like to shape a kingdom story. And that stewardship, because you can have a story and live a life that changes others around you as you are formed, as you experience the formation of the kingdom of King Jesus. Going back to that story that we referenced earlier about Bobby Cummings, remember the the gangster with the shotgun called Kennedy that he slam rock salt into, right? Well, well, he's in prison, right? 40 years gangster. And, and everything around him in prison is forming him. It's shaping him. It's actually discipling him, teaching him tricks of the trade to be a better criminal, right? Because that's where you would establish criminal connections. You'd, you'd make connections for when you get out. It's, it's actually a form of discipleship. It's discipling him in, in the ways of being a criminal. It's a formation. It's shaping him into being a better criminal when he's in prison. But he has somebody next door to him, a killer and a other mobster. And this guy's name is Charlie Richardson. Now he was a part of a gang called the Richardson Gang, and they were known for torturing and killing and extorting people in the most vicious of ways. And he was serving a 35-year sentence right next to Bobby Cummings. And so they're talking, they're having a conversation. They're former gangsters. They're, they're hard guys. They've killed people. They've extorted. They, they have a lot in common. But, but Charlie began to encourage Bobby. And, he's, and he said, he, become educated and earn money without hurting anybody anymore. Go straight. Well, that one conversation shaped Bobby's story forever. He ended up getting an education and a degree while he was in jail. And when he got out, he started working with crisis intervention for housing people who were in crises. And then he founded a nonprofit called Unlock, and he advocated for prison reform so that prisons wouldn't actually form men and women into better criminals, but that prisons would focus on rehabilitation. And he's advised members of parliament. And he he's then started a, a part of that unlock ministry um, or nonprofit that focused on convicts coming out of jail and giving them a place to land, a place to live, and giving them basic things like jobs and transportations and car insurance, which is really hard for former convicts to get. And this is a picture of him being honored by the Queen of England herself. You see, his story changed because someone gave him a better narrative. They gave him a better way of living. They gave him a vision of what it could be. And my friends, your story can be reshaped by the kingdom of Jesus, and you can help others reshape their story by the kingdom of Jesus. You see, like, like we just said, that we want a kingdom-shaped story. So, in conclusion, I want to read Luke 12, verses 31 to 34. It says, instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, 
for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. Do you see what he's saying? You can have a freedom in God's kingdom. It's God's good pleasure to give us this new way of living and and empower us to be able to live that way. That means that we can live free of our possessions. We can live free of selfishness and self-centeredness that we can freely give of our money towards the local church and also to those in need. We can freely give our time and our talents and our treasures and our houses and our cars. We We can invite people in and hold things loosely. Why? Because we are building up a treasure in heaven where moth and dust don't corrupt anymore. And then as we give our treasures back to God, we see that our heart becomes deeper rooted with our king and with the kingdom. And we are living a kingdom-shaped life that produces joy in us. That's what I want for you, a kingdom-shaped life that is producing joy within you, that births into a kingdom-shaped family where your family is thriving and men are leading well and, and, and they're, they're seeing thing, their, their wife and their kids thrive. And that, that actually produces a kingdom-shaped story that can be a narrative for the people around you where you celebrate what the kingdom celebrates. You mourn what the kingdom mourns and, and then you share your story as connected with God's story of his kingdom. So if you're joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come under his lordship, to come under his kingship, be brought into his kingdom and you will see your life transformed. You give your life, you say, Jesus, I make you Lord and King over my life. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is so easy to forget that we are in God's kingdom. It's so easy to forget that we are in the kingdom of King Jesus. And it's so easy to be formed and shaped by the world around us. And so I want you to reject that consciously. I want you to engage in a renewal of your minds consistently. And to help with that, just a few simple points. One, serve your family first. Like don't seek to do ministry before you serve your family. Serve your family, your wife, your kids, those who are in your immediate context, serve them first, care for them, lay your life down for them, lay your preferences down for them. Give of your time, things, and money. Just give it away consistently. And I'm not saying become impoverished. I'm not saying just write a check for everything in your savings. You want to practice wisdom. But as you consistently give, as you consistently give of your money to the local church and to God's vision and mission, as you begin to free yourself for the joy and the celebration of giving, and then not just your money, but also your time, your gifts, right? Serving consistently, not just your family, but then serving within the context of the local church. You'll see celebration and joy and delight in Jesus being your king as he's consistently giving you his kingdom. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, and you can only receive when you have open hands. So serve your family. Give of your time and things and money. And then finally, and this is the deeper root, this is actually, this is where I want to land, which is believe that you have been bought with a price for God's kingdom. You have been bought with the precious 
blood of Jesus to be brought back into his kingdom underneath his authority, underneath King Jesus. And he loves you. And it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I want you to walk in a kingdom shaped life that gives birth to a kingdom shaped family that then produces a kingdom shaped story that others can be a part of. That's what I want for our church family. That's what I want for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.